This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. It's the summer of 1987. I'm at Tara the Buddhist Retreat Center for Women. It's two years since it first opened, and it's possible that the shrine is still made of orange boxes, though I can't remember. The occasion is the Women's Order Convention. I'm not in the order, though. I'm part of the cooking team. It's just a few months since my first retreat. I'm 24. I'm wondering what's what in various ways. Um, the women on the convention number about 50, I think. I remember thinking, how do you cook stir-fry for 50? Uh, and they're almost all the Dharmacharanis in the world at that point. And also present is a mysterious figure. Bante, people call him. Actually, I do have an inkling of who he is. I'd seen him just a couple of months before, giving a talk at Wessac in a big hall in London. That's the celebration of the Buddha's enlightenment. The talk was called The Buddha's Victory. And it was a sort of peaceful call to arms, really. An exhortation to take up the Dharma life in a heroic way. Bhante said on that occasion, according to the Buddha, the spiritual life is an active life, a strenuous life. We might even say that it is a militant life. We have to take the offensive against Mara. We should not wait for him to come and tap us on the shoulder. Attack is the best method of defense. Prevention is better than cure. In those words, I can still hear the twinkle in his voice and his expert comic timing and his deep seriousness. And even that wasn't the first time I'd heard him speak. That was on my first retreat, just the Christmas before, in a cold prep school in Sussex. I'd never heard anything about Buddhism before, at all. I'd never met a Buddhist before. But in that chilly room, via a tape recorder, a voice that would become very familiar discoursed warmly and fervently on mind-reactive and mind-creative as the speaker contrasted the creative mind, intensively and radiantly alive and aware, and the reactive mind, which causes those in whom it predominates to live out their lives almost in a state of sleep, we retreatants, wrapped in blankets against the cold, lulled by the rhythms of the voice, snoozed and slumbered. <laughs> at least that's how I remember it. But now, here I am at Taraloka, and here Bante is. He's staying in the community house, and so are we, the cooking team. His sitting room is just the other side of the wall, just through that door. Through it, he must hear us as we giggle or grumble, depending on how our team dynamics are going. And through it, we hear nothing. Who is it who is on the other side of the wall? We cooks take it in turns to perform a special duty, to take banter his tea. The arrangement is that we'll prepare the tea tray and take it through the door at a specific time. Will we see Bante? We don't know. I'm pretty sure I would have forgotten all about this, but luckily, or um, unluckily, because it's not very good, I wrote a poem about it, which I still have. <coughs> and this is really embarrassing, but I am going to read it to you. <laughs> I did try paraphrasing it, but it didn't seem to work the same way. So, anyway... Taking tea to Bante. Questions from the deep. Shallow questions, washing on the shore. 
floating questions, submerged, submerged, murky questions, a seafall in a teacup with a question mark for a handle. Illuminating energy, gentle affection, love, emotion, a sun full in a teapot with a lid to keep the heat in. High peaks, sunny valleys, treacherous hollows, and a rough path climbing, a life full on a tray with painted flowers shaking in my hands. So I took the tea tray into the room, put it on the table. My memory gives me two pictures, one in which Banty is there, smiles and says thank you, one in which the room is empty and the silence is deep. I don't know which is true. Perhaps they both are. Perhaps it was my turn to take Banter his tea twice. But I do know that I couldn't resist leaving underneath the saucer, perhaps, a copy, an anonymous copy, of those scribbled verses. Ditty. <laughs> as though in the act of giving even something as simple as a cup of tea, I couldn't help hinting at expressing a desire for something in return, something immense, something as vast as oceans and suns, though contained in something so small. So, in the nearly 27 years since then, what further exchanges have there been, and did I get what I wanted? <laughs> what do we want, what do we hope for, from a spiritual teacher? Bandhi addressed those questions very early in the life of Tri Ratna, then the FWBO, in a talk given in 1970, Is a Guru Necessary?, in which, as well as assessing what a guru is not, he pointed out that in the East the guru tends to be overvalued, while in the West we haven't really had any concept of a guru at all. And then there's our te tendency to make celebrities out of people and then look for their faults. So his advice, then, is that we need to recognise that there are those with more experience than us who are in a position to help us, but also that we should not expect from them what we can get ultimately only from ourselves. The term guru being so prone to misunderstanding, it's not surprising that 20 years later, in his talk, My Relation to the Order, Bhante said he thought it would be better to drop the term, that the beautiful, traditional Buddhist term Kalyanamitra, spiritual friend, is quite enough, or even simply friend. Towards the end of this talk, Bhante says, Order members and others sometimes wish they had more contact with me. May I remind you... <coughs> that there is a great deal of me in my books, though not as much as I would like, and that when you read my books, you are very much in contact with me. And that brings me back to my story. At the time of that order convention and that strange tea ceremony, I'd just moved to Norwich, and in Norwich at that time, a group of women order members of Mitras used to produce a magazine called Mitratar. I was an English graduate, and I'd had admittedly a very brief working life since university, but it had involved words, so of course I was um, eminently qualified. <laughs> uh, when I first started with the Mitratar team, we were working on a series based on Bhante's talks about the Bodhisattva ideal, and after that the next series was to be based on the talks about the Tantric path. So my first job was to start typing those Tantric talks. As it happened, they contained quite a lot about the Guru, the archetypal guru, but the passage I remember more than any other is the description in the chapter about the Vajra, a Vajrasattva, the archetypal embodiment of purity, from whose mantra flows a stream of nectar which falls onto the crown of your head. 
Typing that talk for Mitratar moved me to ask Punimala, who was also on the team, to do a Vajrasattva puja with me. And a few years later, I asked for the Vajrasattva practice on my ordination. And I was ordained by Srimala, who led the Mitratar team. But I'm jumping ahead. Back in those Mitratar days, we used to have an annual tea party with Bante. So more cups of tea. <laughs> and I remember a large circle of silent, very shy women, perhaps 20 of us, and Bante genially trying to get us talking. One of us would sooner or later venture a remark across what seemed a very wide space, about a poem perhaps, or asking Bante what he was reading, always guaranteed to get him talking, and perhaps preemptive to guard against his asking us the same question. <laughs> Mitratar was produced in the early days of home computing. When printing out the page proofs, you had to change the printer's daisy wheel for every diacritical mark. Every line over an A or a U or a dash over an S or a dot under a T. The word shunyata, emptiness, has three diacritics. So that's six changes every time it's printed. And on one page of the Bodhisattva ideal talks, the word is repeated at least ten times. <laughs> the text even mentions something called shunyata, shunyata. <laughs> and samsara and nirvana also feature together with their diacritics. So a lot of patience was required, which luckily we also learned about in the Bodhisattva Ideal series. <laughs> as well as talks, Mitratar included extracts from seminar transcripts, from study sessions Bante had conducted over the years. Um, and each of us would look after several seminars. We'd get to know our seminars and put forward extracts we thought relevant to a forthcoming issue. So we got to know the material very well. In that way, I felt I got to know Bante better. In those seminars, and a lot of them were given in the very early days of the movement, and uh, they're now available on Free Buddhist Audio, uh, you can sense not just the passing on of knowledge, but the creation, the forming of a spiritual community. And they're also a reminder that teachings arise not in the abstract, but through the interaction between teacher and students. The students ourselves, in a sense present at those conversations, in which Bante so often distills from a half-formed question what the questioner really wanted to ask. We on the Mitratar team learned a lot too. Another of my Mitratar jobs was to research footnotes in the Order Library, which was then at Padmaloka. I had many pleasant days there, just pottering about among the books. And I remember realising that because this was Bante's book collection, it was his point of reference, his source material. So it was part of our lineage, <coughs> Um, I remember realising that even quite obscure things you were more or less sure to be able to find there because um, these were Bantis books. Um, it happens that <coughs> Midratar didn't carry on much longer. I'm sure it wasn't the diacritics that finished it off. Well, actually, I'm not quite sure. But, uh, <laughs> instead, we started the Spoken Word Project, which had the aim of editing Bantis talks and seminars into book form. Uh, Jananinda and I were most closely involved, but there were many others and, of course, Bante. I'm sure I didn't think about what doing literary work with Bante might be like. Just as well, I might have been nervous. <laughs> literary work is so close to his heart, and he's done so much of it himself. You only have to read his memoirs to see him in India, not only doing so much writing and editing, but sweltering over page proofs and struggling to raise funds for printing, and down at the printer's shops in Darjeeling, remonstrating, remonstrating over printing arrangements. Um, my first book for the Spoken Word Project was the one based on the White Lotus Sutra. 
Um, you can guess that the original talks were given in 1970 from the title, um, The Drama of Cosmic Enlightenment. This book is really close to my heart. I think it would be my desert island book. Um, it's because of the stories. There's a, there's a wonderful moment in the sutra where the Buddha realizes that people aren't making much of a conceptual explanation of something. So he says, through a parable, intelligent people reach understanding. And he proceeds to tell the most wonderful stories, which Banta himself tells very well. He's a very good storyteller. And then he adds in a lot of his own stories for good measure. Um, so that was getting to know Banti through work. I'd also got to know him a little in person by that time. Um, my first Christmas in Norwich, I was part of a team that set up a shop in, in the city centre in, in aid of the Karanar Trust. And I can still remember the moment when I saw a familiar figure approaching the shop door <laughs> with his Russian hat on and uh, rushing to turn off the music, as that was sort of death metal if that had been invented then. I think it was Simon and Garfunkel, actually. But anyway... Uh, before he before he walked in, and I'd also been um, to see him to ask for ordination. I think very much to everybody's surprise, um, except Banti's own. Uh, he wasn't surprised at all. He said, "Oh yes, um, I, th- I thought you that's what you were going to come and ask about. I'm very pleased." So uh, uh, that was heartening at the time. But now we were going to work on words together, and what was that like? It was pretty mixed in a way. Something I remember from quite early on is how I, I propped a photograph of Bante next to my computer before I started editing with a great reverence. And uh, I showed Nagabodi the first draft of my uh, resulting editing, and he said very gently, well, it's a bit stilted. <laughs> so perhaps it was a bit too much reverence, I think I afterwards thought. Um, so once, Bante sent me a postcard in which he said, you've mastered the appropriate editing technique perfectly. Great. <laughs> and once I heard um, in the community I was living in that a message had come through from Bante, um, a phone message, about a preface I'd just written for a book. The message was, it will suffice. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I remember experimenting with those three words. Could they be made to sound positive? <laughs> Quite how critical were they? <laughs> On another occasion, Bante expressed the hope that um, the preface of a book we were working on would make it clear that the book was based on the spoken word. I can't be sure of his exact words, but there was something I I would be ashamed if anyone thought I had written it like that myself. (laughs) Oh, dear. The thing is, um, all of those three statements, you know, they're just fine. They're perfectly objective. Somebody's saying how it is. Um, And in a way, I think um, that's one thing I really enjoy about literary work, that Really, you're just trying to get the best book you can. And in a sense, you have to not mind too much about um, taking things too personally. Sometimes that's hard. But also, there's not really always a right answer. Sometimes it's just a matter of taste. Um, A phrase I associate with Bante is one he's written to me, and I'm sure to many others many times over the years. I am sure you are not resting on your laurels. (laughs) (laughs) But what about those questions that are swilling about in my teacup? <laughs> did, I ever, did I ever ask any of them or even find out what they were? Well, I wonder how we really learn from a spiritual teacher. Uh, I think a lot of light shed from Bante's book, Precious Teachers, in which he explains how he came across his own teachers and what he learned from them and how. And again and again he expresses his gratitude to them, as so many people have done throughout the Buddhist tradition, really, for the gift of the Dharma. 
And I find it really important to have this awareness of Bhante as a student of the Dharma himself, as well as a teacher. Um, that image of one lamp lighting another. But I was intrigued by Bhante's description of the effect on him of an incident involving Jamyang Kense Rinpoche, one of his teachers. Um, the Rinpoche has already given him a tanker. Uh, Bhante goes on to say, The second gift I received from Kense was one he may not have been aware he was giving, though in my eyes this did not render it any less a gift. On my arrival at the palace temple that day, I was asked to wait. I must have waited for half an hour or more. When he eventually emerged from an inner room, he apologised for having kept me waiting. A lama, who was an old friend of his, had died, he explained, and he'd been reciting the Vajrasattva mantra for his benefit. Reciting the Vajrasattva mantra. The words took an immediate hold on me. It was as though Kientsi Rinpoche was giving me a teaching. So, just as typing his talk was my introduction to Vajrasattva, this was Bantu's experience 30 years earlier. And doesn't it seem to say a lot about how teachings happen? I've sometimes had the experience, and you perhaps have as well, of uh, somebody thanking me for something I once said which made a difference to them, and I've totally forgotten saying it. And I myself I really hold to my heart things that people have said to me, although they may have forgotten. Um, um, unfortunately, the, the reverse is also true, isn't it? But uh, that wasn't what I wanted to talk about at the moment. Um, in the Pali Canon, we find that again and again the same phrase is used for someone to describe the moment when they saw something they'd not seen before. Those phrases about setting upright what has been overturned, opening up what has been closed, showing a path that has been lost or bearing an oil lamp in the darkness, so that one who has eyes can see forms. There's just that moment. I think it's right to think of all of this in terms of gifts. Um, in 1995, we brought out a book called Buddhism for Today and Tomorrow, which is based on a sequence of talks given in 1976, in which Bhante outlines four aspects of the possibilities for the living of a Buddhist life in the modern West. That's meditation, Dharma teaching, I should have asked you what you think there, the Sangha or spiritual community, and what he used to call the new society. Uh, in the preface to the book, I referred to something that I think a lot of other people must have spotted as well. But um, the year before he gave the talks, Bhante wrote a poem called Four Gifts. This is it. I come to you with four gifts. The first gift is a lotus flower. Do you understand? My second gift is a golden net. Can you recognize it? My third gift is a shepherd's round dance. Do your feet know how to dance? My fourth gift is a garden planted in a wilderness. Could you work there? I come to you with four gifts. Dare you accept them? So the question is, given all these gifts, given this challenge, what else do we need? Do we need special teachings just for us? Well, we may not need them, but the chances are we want them. So I thought I might confess a little bit about how I've fared myself in this respect over the years. Um, I, can re I can remember times when I went to see Bante, absolutely fraught with some particular question or other, and sometimes I didn't manage to blurt it out in time and the, the hour was over. Or sometimes I think I did ask, 
but the answer didn't come, or not in a way I could recognise, or it wasn't the one I wanted, or I couldn't hear it. Um, sometimes the kind of immensity of it all kind of got in the way, like kind of storm in a teacup, and uh, uh, I couldn't communicate about that or anything else, I suppose. I mean, poor Bante. <laughs> anyway, sometimes I afterwards thought I, I'd sort of steered the conversation the wrong way. If I'd been more patient or found the right words or listened better, I could have got the answer I wanted. However, I do remember a few things where I managed to sort of sort myself out and, you know, and ask a sensible question. Um, for example, it was important to me to know, um, is, it, is it important to be sure what your beliefs are about death and rebirth in terms of preparing for death, whether your own or someone else's? Um, and Bhante just said, well, what really matters then, and he said this really very softly and gently, is, is mindfulness and metta which is very, very simple, isn't it? A simple answer, but very clear. And another time I wanted to know, is it really possible to live a Dharma life according to what he calls the religion of art? I don't know if you've read that book, but he talks quite a bit about living a religion of art. And um, if it was possible, how would you do it? And uh, he talked quite a lot about beauty and bringing it into your life, but he said that really no, well, at one time it might have been possible to live according to a religion of art. At present, one would also need the framework of the Dharma for, from an ethical point of view. Now, was there nothing more esoteric than that? Um, well, I thought there wasn't, but actually when I was preparing this talk, I remembered something just once when I got a manuscript back from Bante. Uh, he put a, a mark by a few lines in the text. I think they might have been about a coiled-up snake or something. I can't remember. He'd written a personal message, something like, something for you to think about, or something like that, which might have been something to do with the syntax, I don't know. But if it was a personal message, what did it mean? Well, I never asked, <laughs> and I never understood. And thinking about it now, it's like a dream. You, you remember that uh, seemed important at the time, that now I don't remember at all. And there have been times also when I've received a clear message, to, an answer to something I haven't asked. For example, once I was sort of searching for conversation and I said brightly, I'm thinking of going to Florence, Bante. To which he just said, ah, to what purpose? And suddenly I felt as though I'd never really done anything in my whole life with anything like purpose. <laughs> Oh, and um, once he gave me the very useful feedback to try not to wave my arms around while giving a talk. So I'm uh, bearing that in mind. <laughs> so um, I have to confess, some, sometimes I felt a bit rueful when I've, t when I've heard somebody else talk about their visit to Bante. You know, the weighty things they talked about, the deep spiritual matters that they weighed in the balance, the confidences they exchanged. But... Um, I think really my own Dharma practice is pretty sort of elementary. There's no, no point in my asking advanced questions. As, as Bantis pointed out more than once, a question has to be a question for you. And also, having read more or less everything Bantis written, even taking into account how much I've forgotten and how much I'm forgetting at an ever faster rate, I have to tell you, um, I don't think I'm capable of asking a question that he hasn't answered somewhere, probably from several angles. <laughs> And another problem with ask, asking a personal question, of course, is that um, you may not like the answer, if there is one. Um, one of the occupational hazards of, of working with a lot of Dharma words is that you feel 
kind of in your heart of hearts, in your absolute marrow, the terrible howling gale that sweeps through the gap between theory and practice, the words and the meaning. I said to Bante not very long ago, um, I feel a bit like an illustration of that verse in the Dharmapadi that says, those who recite many scriptures but do not practice their teachings are like a cowherd counting another's cows. I feel like that watching all the Dharma words sweeping past. Um, I'm sure you have a few cows of your own, Bhante said kindly, <laughs> which I don't think was referring to my living in the country. But, um, also, there's the, um, there's the consideration that cowherds do have a function. Um, it, it is important to... Um, heard the uh, words so to speak Um, and I think this is something that actually the Sangha has shared as a collective responsibility right from the beginning whether through memorising and chanting the Dharma, teaching it copying it, I think everyone in their own way has that that responsibility but um, recently my imagination was caught by a a painting I saw um, at the V&A, there's a, a lovely, lovely exhibition of Chinese paintings at the moment um, there's this um, painting of a monk on the Silk Road. Um, he's got a great big backpack on. The backpack has got incense rising from it. Um, this is because the pack is full of Dharma teachings. And I suppose the incense rising is a bit like the Adistana. But the monk is accompanied by a completely mad-looking tiger prowling. It looks, it looks really batty. Um, and apparently, this this is a very um, it's a common trope in in Chinese art, the monk and the tiger on the Silk Road. Um, so I think I prefer that image of transmitting the Dharma, perhaps to the cowherd one. But uh, recently, I was telling Bante about this image. He he, um, he came over to to see me just a few weeks ago, and uh, and I was telling about the tiger and the associations and the images. And uh, he just looked around and said to the other people who were there, Ah. Vidya Devi identifies with the tiger, which is quite quite true, I suppose. But, um, but teaching isn't just about passing on information. Um, we've just had Parinirvana Day, and uh, I think you know we just all love that story of Ananda standing, weeping at the doorpost, saying, "The Buddha is about to die. He he who was so kind to me." So I'm going to read you a little from another of my very favourite Bantis books. Um, the Bodhisattva ideal. He says of that story, these words are of the greatest significance. So Ananda, you probably know, is is the companion of the Buddha. He'd spent so many years with him. In the course of the 20 years Ananda had spent with the Buddha, he must have heard him deliver hundreds of discourses, including many abstruse, philosophical, deeply mystical teachings. He'd heard him answer thousands of questions He must have admired his brilliance, his affability, the easy way he handled difficult questions. No doubt he'd witnessed all sorts of supernormal happenings. But it was not the Buddha's wisdom or his understanding of philosophy, his skill in debate or his ability to work miracles, his courage or his tireless energy that stood out. For Ananda, the Buddha's outstanding quality was his kindness. After all those years in which he'd heard so much, the overall impression the Buddha had made upon Ananda is summed up in those few words, he who is so kind. Half of Buddhism is in that remark, says Bhante, and it also gives us the origin of the Bodhisattva ideal. So I think this must be the archetypal reminder that spiritual friendship is not just about answers to difficult or pressing questions, 
more than anything, it's about kindness. Um, Bantu's certainly been very kind to me. Um, I think at a time in my life when I was really terribly miserable, and it was all because of something I'd done myself, so I wasn't just miserable but ashamed, it was all my own fault. Um, but Bantu just kept in touch with me one way or another, even just to ask about progress on our, our literary projects, which somehow we've managed to keep going through wherever else I've been, whatever else I've been doing. They've been like a sort of sustaining thread for me, so I'm grateful. Well, I can't say how grateful, really. Um, and sometimes you just listen to me uh, being distressed or having all sorts of um, um, appalling doubts and so forth. Um, in, one, in one phone call I told him, and I'm afraid I wasn't as sorry about this as I ought to have been, um, that a mouse had eaten my caser. Um, this, this was actually true while I was on holiday. A mouse had eaten my caser. So uh, anyway, a couple of days later, a padded envelope arrived in the post with a brand new caser. <laughs> Bantu wasn't going to let me wriggle out of my caser ownership as easily as all that. <laughs> um, I think Bantu, I mean, anyone who, who knows him, who's met him, will tell you, but his kindness... Um, should be sung as, as much as we possibly can. Um, to take a really small example, um, I know he listens to the radio sometimes, and a while ago I asked him, does he ever listen to Poetry Please on Radio 4? Actually, he doesn't always appreciate the way poems are read out loud, so um, it might not have pleased him entirely, but I was a bit surprised he'd never listened to it. And then we, when we thought about it, though, we thought, well, it's on, on at 4.30 on a Sunday... And for years and years and years, Bante has tended to have a visitor at four o'clock every day. So just think about that. Every day, there you are in your room, there's a knock at the door, and somebody comes in. Maybe it's someone you know, maybe it's someone you know quite well, maybe you've never met them before at all. And perhaps they want to tell you something, ask you something, criticise something. Perhaps it's the most important moment of their life so far. Perhaps anything. Or perhaps they can't say what it is, so they just keep chatting and hope that they can work out as they go along what they, what they want to say. Um, now, of course, all of us have our roles and duties in life. You could say, well, what's the difference between that and putting in the hours at work or getting the kids their tea? But um, I think Bante took it all on, took us all on, not as a sort of family duty or a career move or even really a personal decision. Um, I've got in mind here what Sabuti said in his paper, A Suprapersonal Force, but essentially as a kindness. He's, he's often quoted Walt Whitman's lines, when I give, I give myself, and I think that's true of Bante. Um, about 12 years ago, Bante was asked by Wisdom Publications in America if they could publish a compilation of his work. So um, he asked me would I make the selection, so... Um, I had Well, it was a great job, but it was also pretty challenging, you can imagine, trying to work out what to choose. And again, more got left out than was put in. Um, it was even more difficult because um, I was given a free hand. Uh, I kept saying, but what, what reader have you got in mind? Or, you know, what sort of thing do you want? And they just kept saying, oh, well, we'll leave it up to you. So um, it was great, really. But um, And in a way, I think by that time, too, Bante was... It's made quite a big difference working together, um, that his eyesight has gradually deteriorated. So um, in some ways it's made him an even more critical um, 
reader of of the work because uh, he not only, not being able to read it, he listens to it. And of course, if you listen to something, uh, that's you know it's even more testing. Um, I've not always had time, but sometimes when I've been working on a book, I've read it out loud to myself because um, on other occasions. Uh, in a study group or something, I've completely winced to hear uh, some infelicity that should really have been edited, <laughs> edited properly. Um, but anyway, so, so Bante has always been, well, I think a combination of very critical, but also incredibly generous, <coughs> trying to imagine again what it would be like to have, you know, a talk you gave or a discussion you had maybe 30 years ago, kind of hauled out, um, repackaged uh, some upstart editor or other sort of decided that this bit should go here and that bit should go there and you know Bante is a very careful and meticulous editor himself um, I think he, he's, he's been very generous in, in sort of letting go in a sense um, so it's, it's, a, it's a combination of things but um, anyway the essential Sangharakshita uh, had all this material and eventually I decided it it, it would all fit into the symbol of the mandala of the five Buddhas. I couldn't work out how on earth to structure it, but that, that in the end worked really well. But I don't think there was anything in the whole, the whole mass of words that didn't fit somewhere in that mandala, so it gave it a good principle of organisation. Um, and I wrote in the preface, so that's the pattern into which the heaps of words have fallen or been placed. I've been struck by how these different aspects of Buddhism really do seem like entirely different worlds. Conceptual clarity and philosophy balanced with emotional warmth and devotional fervour. Action in the world balanced with myths and dreams. Perhaps each of us will be drawn more to one of these worlds than the others. As for Sangharach to himself, it seems difficult to guess in which of these realms he might feel most at home. To judge from these writings, he's happy in all of them. So reflecting a bit more on that, um, I, I've come to think, well, perhaps we do each see and appreciate different bantus depending what we're drawn to. Um, the central aspect of that mandala to which we must all relate is devoted to the historical Buddha and his teachings. Um, and so in, in Bhante and Subhuti's recent papers, which I think definitely belong to the, uh, the realm of Akshobhya and the clear lucid, illuminating style. Um, they've emphasised how all teachings must be seen in terms of how they relate back to the, the Buddha. But I must say, I've always been struck by how Bhante's teachings, on which whatever aspect of Buddhism they're about, even my really beloved Mahayana stories and sutras, he draws on the Pali Canon all the time. If you're doing the notes for a book like that or doing the index or something... Um, it's, it's very much there all the time. Um, the part of the mandala I've loved most, as your guess, is the, the realm of myths and stories and poetry and beauty. And I, I was really very grateful that Bantu gave me the name Vidya Devi when I was ordained. I think I was expecting, I was expecting something that would be very, very hard work. And difficult and testing and it, it sort of it sort of is difficult but in a very different sort of way it's just such a such a beautiful realm to be invited to live in um and I've, i had a, a chance to spend actually quite a while a few sessions with bante a couple of years ago now talking about his favorite poetry 
um, always a favourite subject of his. But what really struck me, I mean, um, there are all kinds of things, but there were so many old ballads and stories, even children's rhymes. He, you know, um, he, he just loves those. He can still recite them. And this is the same person who can expound and fathom the most abstruse philosophy. Um, so what that tells me is it's a lot about um, having the confidence to be yourself and just stay sensitive to what your real responses are to things. Um, to be a true individual is the way Bante usually puts it, um, which is so hard. Um, I think one of the really illuminating things is how prescient Bante has been in realising this. Because we think now, well, we're utterly bombarded, beset, you know, twittered, Googled, Facebooked, and all the rest of it. But um, I wanted to read you a bit. Um, you may be, or you may or may not be familiar with a collection of Bantu's India writings called Crossing the Stream. Another of my favourites. I'm now up to three Desert Island books already. So, anyway, um, in the, Crossing the Stream. So, this is written in the 1950s. This is from the essay, The Voice Within. Buddhism has been described as the proudest assertion ever made of human freedom. Now, the book didn't tell you where that was from, but I can tell you it's from the preface to The Light of Asia by Edwin Arnold um, in my footnote mode. Um, it's been called the proudest asser assertion ever made of human freedom because it stands up boldly, even defiantly, against the ponderous brute mass of externality that threatens to grind out of existence the moral and spiritual life of man. It not only teaches us that our first duty is to understand things as they really are, but gives us the courage necessary to make the attempt. It exhorts us never to allow ourselves to be overwhelmed by the flood of thoughts and emotions which come pouring in on us from all sides but to weigh and test each of them in the light of our own knowledge and experience. We should be equally critical of the claims of an advertisement, an election poster and a religious teaching. That which we find wrong and harmful we should at once reject, while that which we find true and good we should accept and endeavour to put into practice. We should, in all circumstances, think clearly and feel sincerely. Then we will act rightly too. For Buddhism does not take up such an independent attitude towards the external world simply for the sake of display, but in order to make room for the full development of our latent spiritual and creative powers. Pre pressure from without is wrong and bad only because it crushes the life which is struggling to flower forth from within. So if those were the pressures in the 50s in India... Well, I suppose that um, Bantu was writing for an international readership, but uh, it's and then some now, I guess. But in discussing poetry with Bantu, um, it wasn't just about how much he knows and how much he remembers, but also um, how deeply he responds to things. Now, we know this from uh, reading his memoirs. You know, he talks about how when he was six or seven, he says he met, he met a metaphor for the first time. And he says, I can still re recall the shock of delight the experience gave me. And then later on, he says that Milton's Paradise Lost went through him like a spear. Well, I've always loved poetry as well, but not like that. 
But the thing is, even in... It's always tempting to make comparisons, but we still need to take notice of what our own experience is. You know, if for me it was a verse by Emily Dickinson, which I read when I was 17, which sort of slid into my consciousness somehow and gave me a sort of registering of the way things are, well, that's how it was for me. So it's not just about admiring somebody else's individuality, however much you do admire it. It's trying to work out how to develop, develop your own, I suppose. So back with lamps, at the same time we're to be lamps unto ourselves, the Dhammapada says. So um, I can't help noticing that although I've every intention of talking to you about Bante, um, I can't help also talking rather a lot about myself, I'm sorry. Um, I think it's to be expected in a way, um, when talking about somebody who's played the role in one's life that Bante's played in ours, because it's a bit like... There's contact with any friends a bit like this, but it's a bit like looking in a mirror, you know, when they say, to what purpose, or you've mastered the technique perfectly, or I would be ashamed. <laughs> you see yourself reflected, you can't help it. Um, but there's also the reflection of yourself as you could be. Um, the poet Manjusvara, order poet who died recently, in his poem Holy, he refers to those who think better of me than I do. And for me, Bante is one of those people. Um, but I don't want you to feel that if you haven't had personal contact with Bante, that somehow you've, you're missing, you're missing out. Um, of course, as I tried to say, uh, there's always the possibility that even if you have had contact with Bante, you still rather perversely feel you're, miss- you're missing out. Um, so Bante's said and written so much that's available to us to read and listen to. Um, but also he's emphasised so much friendship and Kalyanamitrata and he, he's been so careful to hand, hand on our tradition in a way which is a real network of, of friendship and support so that all of us have the love and encouragement of people who think better of us than we do. Hopefully we, we create light for one another. And uh, as Bhante made clear in his talk, My Relation to the Order, we are all important to him. Uh, there's that connection, and he himself has continued to feel that with his own teachers, who he had to leave behind in India all that time ago. Um, in an email a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned to Bante that I was coming to Manchester to give this talk. And his response, to my surprise, was that he wished he could come and give a talk <laughs> about, about me. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, of course... Um, I wish that too, in a way. <laughs> Not that it would be about me, although I can't help wondering what he would have said. <laughs> but that he could be here to talk to you himself. Um, much though I really love the written word, um, I've, it's clear there's a particular kind of wisdom you get through hearing. Um, you get the nuances of what's said so naturally, in a way that it's hard to reflect on the page. Although I suppose all of our editing work over, t- over time has been to try to echo, to echo that effect. But I'd really encourage you to listen to Bantis talks for that reason, as well as the um, comic timing I mentioned. Um, not as an aid to going to sleep, although some people do claim they have that effect. <laughs> um, Bante and I, um, along with others, are still planning publications. And one I've just started work on is a book based on the seminars that Bante once conducted, and you can all remember these, on the, uh, the stories of the Tibetan yogi Milarepa and his disciple Rachungpa. 
So Ruchumpa seems to be about as recalcitrant a disciple as you can imagine. He's by turns um, proud, mutinous, distracted, angry, petulant. Um, this is starting to sound familiar to anybody. It does to me. <laughs> and yet, in the end, all turns out well, thanks essentially to Milarepa's refusal to react to all these moods. So the discussions cover a lot of interesting ground about what it really is to learn from another person. And it seems the right time now to, to bring out a book whose theme will essentially be the relationship between a Dharma teacher and their student. Um, Bante once pointed out that in hearing the stories like that, we have a natural tendency to identify with the wise teacher rather than the hapless disciple. <laughs> but I'm afraid that Rachumpa's mental states are all too recognisable. Um, we're also beginning to plan the publication of Bante's complete works. Um, as you can quite well imagine, Bante um, has in mind a beautiful, monumental, hardback set of books. And we are going to do that. We haven't decided quite how many, what we're going to do, given that probably a lot of people want to have them to read on their Kindle or their you know, iPad. Uh, so what, how are we going to do it? But uh, we're in, in, into that discussion. So that is a lot of words. But um, don't worry. <laughs> um, I think, well, if we're teaching the Dharma, we're going to need a whole range of approaches. But for our own guidance, a little goes a long way. One desert island book would be fine. Even one verse would be fine, really. Um, I think that's true if you're not particularly wordy. And it's possibly even more true if you are particularly wordy. Um, but I think re whether or not we read every word, um, it seems really, really important that we have a shared language. And that's what the range of Bantu's teachings gives us. Um, I mean, these days you may feel more attuned with the writing of other order members. Um, Ratnaguna, Vijimala, um, Subhadramati, Vasantra. We've got, we've got so many people now. Um, also writing. And my sense is that Bante, for him, this is one, one aspect of his handing on. And I think he's been wanting to see it happen for a long time. I know he said things to, to me to that effect for years, but um, I found um, a remark in, in these Songs of Milarepa seminars uh, where he said, well, people should be writing better books, giving better lectures, you know, having bigger and better centres. And that was all said in 1980. So he's, been, he's had this in mind a long time. Um, I'll, I'll conclude just by going back to that um, shaking tea tray. Um, well, I moved to Herefordshire about 12 years ago to the kind of depths of the countryside. And um, last year, as it happens, Bante also <laughs> moved to Herefordshire uh, to Adistana, so um, not so very far away. Um, one of the ways I'm getting involved there is getting involved with the establishment of the library, which is that very same library that I've been so fond of all these years. My books are the same. So it's a kind of sort of coming full circle, even although, I, I mean, I can see quite well that researching footnotes these days, you can Google is quicker, but it's not the same. <laughs> Bant has visited me out in the country quite a number of times. Um, once he said, you've become a sort of land girl, <laughs> which, is kind of <laughs> which is kind of true. Um, but what I wanted to tell you is, did you know that Bante himself was once a sort of market gardener? And this brilliant passage in Precious Teachers, in which in between talking about all his teachers and all the teachings, there's a really happy passage in, in the book. Uh, it's a description of how Bante managed the land around his Vihara in Kalimpong. 
He says, During my time at the Vihara, the price I got for my oranges rose steadily. So the price I got for them in 1964 was 10 times what it had been in 1957. I also, this is where the poet comes through, started growing buckwheat between the orange trees. Its crimson stalks and pink and white flowers created a sea of colour out of which the trees seemed to rise. Bante is a very poetic market gardener. Um, there was one day last spring, spring when uh, Bante and I sat on a bench by the wildlife pond I've made and uh, heard a frog jump into the pond. And um, I know he's fond of reptiles because I read all about that in the Rainbow Road. He, he kept a toad as a pet when he was a boy. Anyway, the, the gifts we exchange these days are really pretty simple. So I give him flowers from the garden, a jar of rhubarb jam, maybe a recording of poems if I find one I think he'll like. And he invariably gives me something for your shrine. A cloth, a crystal, a mala. So just, just a hint. <laughs> and uh, and um, of course when we meet, well, we have a cup of tea. And uh, these days it's not fraught with questions. It's just simply a friendly and very loving cup of tea. Mm, that's it. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.